do that at the end of the service if you can. Have you ever sat down in a restaurant and the waitress comes and the first thing she says is, I'm new, I'm being trained. You ever had that? However, right behind her, there is an experienced waitress who is monitoring the whole situation, right? And uh, throughout the meal, she is uh, listening to the instructions of her mentor and doing her best and uh, perform her duties accordingly. And uh, I got to tell you, I kind of like having a new waitress. I do, for a couple of reasons. Number one is they want to do a good job. You ever had a waitress that didn't do a good job? Woo. I'm not going to even go there. Uh, but uh, I like a waitress who is very intent to the details and wants to do well. And not only that, she's got somebody watching her back and speaking into her. Now do this, do this, do this. And constantly giving her good instructions to be able to follow through. So you have the commitment and you have the information, which produces, hopefully, good service. I don't know, I just kind of thought about that illustration when I thought about the Holy Spirit in me. I'm kind of this work in progress. You ever feel like that with God? You're just kind of a work in progress? I hope you do. do we, well, do we have any perfect people here today? I don't know. Um, I kind of like that. I kind of like thinking of the Holy Spirit right there with me, who's speaking truth into me, who's speaking the ways I ought to do and the things I ought to say, and, uh, and I'm fully dependent on Him in the situation that I find myself. Our message today is entitled, The Legacy of Discipleship. Disciple, one who follows, one who is a student, a learner, is what the word means. A disciple is this student in training they're open to the molding of the mentor. They're open to being challenged, corrected. Discipleship is on-the-job training. It's not classroom training so much. And a true disciple is one that is fully committed to the cause. This current series called Leaving a Legacy um, is from the second chapter, today's second chapter of 2 Timothy. This series is from 2 Timothy. It's the Apostle Paul's final book, just written a few months before he died, and I would, I've read it uh, all these uh, times now, I, I see so many foundational truths in Paul's, kind of his last will and testament to the church here. I see over and over how he is calling his spiritual son, Timothy, and by extension to us, step back, look at the scheme of things, what's really important in life? Don't let this, uh, the minutia of all this temporary stuff rob you of this, this greater vision. Don't be timid, Timothy. You've not been given a spirit of timidity. Don't be timid. Don't back away. You're, your spirit in you is filled with power and love and discipline. And Timothy, don't fear intimidation. The, the world around you isn't going to accept your message very well. You're going to have opposition. There may be even suffering in your future. But don't be ashamed of the good news, Timothy. The good news, the only news, the words of life that can change the hearts and lives of people. You have a holy calling on your life, Timothy. Guard it. Retain it. 
by the truth and power of the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 starts with this verse. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong, Timothy, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so I would just make the point that's obvious from the passage, uh, disciples are strong in grace. Disciples are strong in grace. We talk a lot about grace around here, don't we? You ever get tired of grace? Man, I had somebody come to me once and say, man, I'm so tired of talking about grace. I said, not me. I mean, we've got it in our church name, right? It's one of our core values. It's something we, we, we preach about, we teach about, and uh, one of the things that we always say about grace is that it is God's gift to us in exchange for our sinfulness. There's an exchange that's taken place. Because of the cross of Christ, we can take our sin, place it on Jesus who suffers the agony of this punishment on the cross with our sin heaved upon Him, willing to do that. That's our part of the exchange. And He, in return, gives us His righteousness, His holiness, His very life. And so grace is everything when it comes to our salvation. There's not a one of us here that says that you deserve salvation. There's not a one of us here that says, I was so good that God was so happy to have me on his team, he just put grace in me because I I deserved it. Not a one of us, none of us have merit in standing because we're not perfect. We are sinful. But I got to tell you, grace doesn't stop there. Grace is not just a work of salvation. It is the ongoing, governing, controlling work of the Holy Spirit in our life. That's why Paul says to Timothy, the pastor of the church, a leader of the church, he's saying, Timothy, in spite of your position in the church, and maybe because of your position in the church, (laughs) be strong in grace. Be strong in grace. If you're not strong in grace, they're going to get to you. If the world doesn't get to you, the church will get to you. And I want you to think about it in these terms. Grace tells me that, um, it tells me that my life's not about me. Isn't that a great place to live? Your life isn't about you. It's about Him. He gives me a a different set of expectations for living. I, I... I recognize the fact that I had no merit when He saved me. I still have no merit in and of myself to justify His acceptance of me, yet He accepts me. I have no merit in and of myself, even as a follower of Christ, to warrant His favor on my life, yet He blesses me. And when I have this understanding that it's not because of my merit, but because of His gift, I'm strong. I'm strong against that which would come from the world, the messages that I get from the world. Such as, have you ever had somebody compliment you? Come on. You've had people compliment you, right? Have you ever been tempted to think that they're correct? You know... They really are right. I am beautiful. 
I'm just gorgeous. I, I, they really are right. I am smart. Mm-hmm. I'm good at what I do. Boy, I couldn't agree more. They said I was humble, and I have to agree with that. You know, when you're strong in grace, where does all good come from? Him. And if there's good that flows through our lives, if there's fruit that's produced, I know where it came from. My worthiness, my merit is only found in Him. Say what you will. On the other hand, have you ever had people criticize you? Anybody? Yeah. You're tempted to defend yourself, right? Or you're defended to get your feelings hurt, retaliate, self-pity. Now, I'm going to tell you something that's hard to believe, but did you know that there have been a few times in my life where people have criticized me? I know, I know. Uh, who would have thought, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, there have been people who in my lifetime have uh, questioned my personal abilities. Can you believe that? Criticized how I handled certain situations, things I said, uh, decisions I've made. Does being strong in grace help that? It, it, I, I got to tell you, it, it's grace, it's Jesus, it's, it's that, that presence of, uh, I have no merit in an, apart from him, uh, that helps us through those times. Uh, I've, I've had many times in my life where I've received criticism, and I, I come away from that, and I go, you know, they're right. You ever been there? Well, have you ever been willing to say it, first of all, Right? I am inadequate. I did mess that up. But you know what Grace says? <laughs> I have no merit. But my Savior has all merit. <laughs> uh, you may not be the best leader, the best parent, the best spouse, the best anything. But I'm going to tell you, He is. He can love your spouse through you in ways that you never thought possible. He can raise good kids through you. Did you know that? We need him. We need him. You know, if you're one that's inclined to accept blame and... Uh, point out and, and embrace your own inadequacies, and even as a Christian, you kind of downplay and just don't, don't get involved with stuff because you're, you don't want to fail or, you know, the kind of personality. And I want you to know some things that the Bible says about you as a follower of Christ. Look at Jude, the 24th verse. Now to him who is able to keep you from what? stumbling 
And to make you, I say, yes, you, stand in the presence of His glory, you, blameless, with great joy. Did you know they're talking about every believer in Christ in that verse? Every single believer that is following Christ has the Holy Spirit who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to make you stand in the very presence of God with all of His glory. Standing in great joy because it was never based on your merit. It was based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the great verse from Ephesians 3, uh, Now to Him, back to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's a lot. According to the power, His power, that works where? Within you and within me. Those scriptures are about us. Ordinary people, ordinary followers of Christ. Man, the question is, do you believe those? You know, I'm often reminded, and I quote this, this from C.S. Lewis all the time, is, Perhaps a little self-revealing when C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for so little, especially in our journey with Jesus. The second verse the things which you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Disciples are conduits of grace. We receive this message. We receive this gospel. We receive the life-transforming words. We steward them as we live them out, and we pass them on to those in our circle, our, our, our kids. We leave a legacy, a generational chain of discipleship, of the truth of God. And as I think about this and what I do for a living, I serve as a pastor. Is that what the church is doing? Are we training our people? Well, it's kind of like this. Is the church, was it kind of like a boot camp? Is it kind of like a vocational training center? Is it, is it a place where people come and they experience community and they understand that there is responsibility with being part of a community and they receive this training, ongoing training, to develop and see what God is calling them and their life to be about. Back in 1979, that was a long time ago, right? Elton Trueblood wrote these words, Perhaps the greatest single weakness of the contemporary Christian church is that millions of supposed members are not really involved at all, and what is worse... Don't think it's strange that they are not. 
As soon as we recognize Christ's intention to make His church a militant company, we understand at once that the conventional arrangement cannot suffice. There is no real chance of victory in a campaign if 90% of the soldiers are untrained and uninvolved. Would you agree with that? And he finishes the quote with, but that is exactly where we stand now. 1980, a year later, the Gallup poll indicated that only 2% of evangelical Christians had ever talked to an unbeliever about their faith. Now, that was way back in 1980. We've learned from that, haven't we? We're a whole lot better place now, aren't we? There's a lot of people that would say we have a crisis of discipleship in the church. We don't see the church as that that kind of place. It's not the place we're teaching and training and developing the core message of the gospel in the lives of people so that it can be passed on, entrusted to them, passed on to generation after generation, out into our communities, in our neighbors' lives, in our, the people that we work with in their lives. And could it be that in the modern church today, we've flipped the gospel to be one of self-help? We really want the gospel about us. We want the church about us. Could it be that there is more consumer Christianity going on today than soldier Christianity going on today? And I've talked about this many times in the past several months, is that when I think of passing truth on to the next generation, does the next generation know that they're a part of it? Are we embracing relationships with teenagers, children? Do our teenagers and our children have opportunities to be loved by adults? Or do they come to church and get segmented out and then they never really have meaningful discussion and feel a part of the community? I've always seen 2 Timothy 2.2 as a fundamental core verse for the church. It's what we do. You know, I read an article this past week about millennials. You know what millennials are, right? I am not one. Okay? My kids would be considered millennials. Probably 18 to young 30s. The article was about what millennials want in a church. What are they looking for in church? And if you're like me, a baby boomer, you think, oh, this is going to be good. Kids today, right? I got to tell you, they got a better handle on faith than my generation. Two things highlighted in the article. You know what the second one was? Millennials are looking for authentic community. Millennials are rejecting culturally sensitive, seeker-marketed church. Wholesale rejecting it. Rejecting slick, programmed, market-based ministry. 
They want community that isn't afraid of broken, messed up people. I do like John Burke's down there at Gateway Church in Austin. He's, he's the byline of his church, no perfect people allowed. I like that. These millennials want love that's real. A place where hurting people are accepted and loved and cared for. That was the second most important thing to them. You know what the most important thing to young people is in the church? In a simple word, truth. They just want the truth. They want to know how to process their own sexuality. They want to know how to process family relationships. They want to know how, they want to know what the Bible says. They rate going to a church that preaches out of the Bible as their number one objective in church. I am so glad. These millennials are hungry for community, authenticity, and truth. I think of John 1.14 as kind of a banner verse in my own ministry, in the life of this church. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, a glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And when you see Jesus and when you see God, you see Him full of what? Grace and truth. Grace. There's no condemnation. We don't condemn anyone. There's no judgment cast upon people. We don't compare. We don't size up people that walk through the door and wonder if they'll fit in. There's no competition between us and other churches. We're all on the same team, doing the same thing, trying to achieve the same goal. It's this, this grace is forgiving. It is accepting. It is true compassion, the compassion of Christ for the sinner. Truth, it's fixed, it's unchangeable. I am convinced, folks, that the Bible is teaching today exactly the same things it was teaching 2,000 years ago. It hasn't changed its message. It was good in first century Roman culture, and it's good in 21st century modern America. I don't think it needs to be nuanced. I don't think it needs to be progressed upward. I don't think it needs to be revised. It is the words of life. And the further that we mess with it and try to make our churches more fitting in, not all of that was in my notes, I just went off on you, sorry. Paul goes into three metaphors in the passage to help us understand how this life of grace, this life of truth, this gospel lives out in us personally. He highlights three types of people, soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Do we have any of those here today, soldiers? I know I see a soldier back there. Soldiers, athletes, and farmers? Yeah, sort of, yeah. But we can all learn from these three metaphors. Verse 3 and 4, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Timothy, be a soldier. The ramifications for the church are startling, aren't they? Are we a, are we a platoon? 
I would say, yes, we are. Are we on a mission? I would say, yes, we are. Do we have an enemy? Yes, we do. And what he's talking about in this passage is that a soldier is only worth his salt if he is completely focused on the vision of the mission. And so the point is, disciples are focused on the vision of grace. On one hand, he is writing to a pastor here. He's writing to Timothy, the church leader in Ephesus. And it is a charge to him and all pastors to give their full attention to the gospel. And they shouldn't be encumbered, he says, by other duties when he writes over in 1 Corinthians 9.14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But this is not just a message for pastors and full-time ministers. This is for every one of us. There's a call on each one of our lives. And the call is for the vision of the gospel of, the, of, of grace. I, I don't have to tell you, we all know this, nothing that we do in this life has eternal value except that which is of His kingdom. That which is a part of the mission of His kingdom, the vision of His kingdom. I mean, think of a soldier. Can you imagine going into a battle with a group of soldiers that are all about their families back home? Or even their careers? Or what am I going to do when I get out of the military? Or even their own preservation. In face, of, They're getting ready to go into battle. Well, my main goal in this battle is to survive. How good a soldier is that? A little side note, I think uh, sometimes churches sell out that way. It's about survival, not about the mission. Sometimes the mission will cost us. We've always got to be about the mission. No matter what the ramifications, personally, it's always about the mission of God's kingdom. And we don't, uh, we don't glamorize it. We don't... Uh, peddle a gospel that it talks about in 2 Timothy, last chapter, a gospel that tickles the ears of people. That they, oh, I just want to feel good and be happy. We don't peddle that kind of gospel because it's not the true gospel. We don't peddle a gospel that's all about worldly success. Come and be a part of the church and you're just going to have... The gospel is to is a call to run counterculture, to live for a cause greater than ourselves, to live for another place and another time. Talks about an athlete, verse 5, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the, and everybody say it, according to the, don't you like that? Huh, rules. What does that mean? I mean, Mr. Grace, Paul, what's he saying? And I got to tell you, I read a lot of commentaries on this verse. A lot of them, you know what they talk about? They talk about the validity of the law in the life of the believer. That you as a believer, you better follow the rules 
I read one that said keeping the rules is the only way we're going to know if you're a Christian. And I'm here to tell you I don't believe a lick of it. Did I say that strongly enough? I mean, this is one of the key issues that we've got messed up in the church world today. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for us, those in Christ Jesus. And then the second verse we're going to put up there, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has done what? Set you free from what? The law of sin and death and rules... So, if being a Christian isn't my best effort at keeping the rules, what in the world is Paul talking about when he says to live according to the rules? Let me make my point, and then I'll flesh it out a little bit. Disciples are obedient to the restrictions of grace. You see, it's grace itself that compels the very obedient life of Christ to live through us. Jesus said it over in John 14, that if you love me, what is going to happen automatically out of your life? If you love me, you will obey me. We don't obey as a trying to say that we love. We, love as a re, we obey as a result of love. Paul, writing to Titus, his other protege, over in uh, the second chapter of Titus, he writes this, it's for the grace of God has appeared. And everything that follows now is a result of grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to what? Deny ungodly and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It is grace that compels this life change in us that, well, we have a different want to. We have a different motivation. Galatians 5.16, this is Paul writing again, but I say walk by the Spirit, and if you're walking by the Spirit, what are you not going to do? I'm not going to carry out the desire of the flesh. So my focus is not Trying hard to not carry out the desire of the flesh, my focus is what? Trying hard to walk in the Spirit and give Him my attention. And you have a choice. You can, uh, you can live your life trying hard to not carry out the sinful desires and temptations you have, or you can live your life focused on a loving God who died for you and lives within you. It's up to you. You can focus on trying hard not to sin, or you can focus on Jesus. Um, I've done both. Have you? I've done both. I've studied the Word. I have personal experience. And I can tell you, if you choose to try hard to obey the rules, and that's your method of righteousness, good luck. Trying hard to obey the rules will make you disobey more of them. Focusing your, your life on Jesus Christ and the beauty of His grace, what's a byproduct of that? 
you live in the restrictions of grace, and you, you just don't want to, you're over, his presence overwhelms. So if you have problems with temptation, it's not to buckle down and try harder as much as it is to draw near into the life of Christ. The farmer, verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Uh, you need to experience it first before you can pass it on. If, you, if you've not experienced the grace of God, then it's hard to really pass that on. You need to be the first to share with it. But don't you love how it opens? The hard-working farmer. You know, sometimes I hear some Christians say things like this. Because of grace, oh, I love grace so much, I love it. Because of grace, Jesus does everything, and I don't have to do anything. Don't you love grace? And i got to tell you, after reading through the book of Acts, which details the journeys and the work of the Apostle Paul, and reading the Apostle Paul's epistles, the reason I bring him up, because the people who say that get it from him, I wonder if Paul would agree that the Christian doesn't need to work hard. Paul wrote that. Here's my point. Disciples are hardworking ministers of grace. A few supporting scriptures, Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Keep working. Hebrews 13, 16, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, now not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So who does the work? It is God. How does He do it? He does it through you and I. I don't buy for a minute that we are non-participants in the work of God in the world. He has saved us to be conformed into Him so that the world will see Jesus is real through the way that we live out the work of God and the gospel in the world. He not only calls us to great works, He resources us for those great works. I read the last chapter of this book, 2 Timothy. Paul says, I fought the good fight. He left it all out there. He did all that he was called to do. He looks back over his life and he sees countless churches started. He sees all these lives changed. He sees more than half of the New Testament written. I mean, what if Paul had said that he was just going to feel good and party for the rest of his life because of grace? I don't have to do anything. Thank the Lord. Now, I'm walking a very tight rope here this morning because walking in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is thoroughly enjoyable. <laughs> it puts the soul 
at rest. <laughs> there is a relaxation of spirit amidst the activity of ministry. There's so many times, you, you can relate to this, there's so many times where you have poured yourself out in ministry. You're physically exhausted. And you come home and all the way through and, all, and afterwards, there's such a rest, there's such a place of peace, there's such a place of even relaxation spiritually that it's been all Him working through your physical body. And you're just exhilarated to be a part of the mission of God to change the world. And even the flip side is true. There's times where this presenting the gospel in a hostile world is, can bring criticism and persecution and suffering and uh, negative stuff. And uh, I mean, I've had some experiences in ministry that are just awful. I mean, at a different church, not this church, a different church, but uh, different places. And uh, I can tell you, right in the midst of all of that, there is this accompaniment of the Spirit of God that says, I'm walking with you, and perhaps you even sense it closer than at most other times. And uh, it's exhilarating to know that you're on the front lines of the gospel. And I, I just, I, I, what is God saying to you? I had someone come to me this past week and just said, I'm, I'm done. I want in. I'm done sitting on the sidelines. I want in. I, I, God's given me a gift. He's given, I know it burns in my soul and I want back in. I, I want to serve and I want to, I want God to make my life about more than just me. Maybe that's you today. You're, you're just tired of being this Christian spectator. Oh, what a terrible way to live. I've got to tell you, it's just terrible. And it gnaws at you, and you don't have to wonder why you're empty or unfulfilled or bored or whatever. You don't wonder. You know. You know it's this spiritual passivity and... Soldier? You don't even think that way. So if, if God is speaking in those ways to you, what do you do? Well, I, I, I give you verse 7. Consider what I say. This is how he wraps up the paragraph. For the Lord, Timothy, will give you understanding in everything. You want to know the answers? Where are you going to get it? You're going to get it from him. He is the source of understanding, and uh, you ask him, Jesus, okay, I'm available. Uh, you're always right, and I'm going to draw into you. If you come to me and you go, now, Pastor, you know, uh, I felt under a lot of conviction in that message. I don't like conversations that start that way sometimes, but uh, I've come under conviction. It sounds like you need help in the church. Okay. Where do you want me? No, -uh. I'm going to say, you need to, the Lord will give you understanding. You need to draw into Him. And I'm telling you, when you make Him the 
the pursuit of your life. <laughs> All of a sudden, ministry begins to formulate in your life, and doors begin to happen and open. And uh, sometimes he may say, you know, not now. I, I, I just want you and me here. And sometimes you'll, you'll have seasons of ministry, and then there'll be times where you'll retreat. And uh, it's, it's, it's all him. And he'll do what he wants to do. But it starts when, when we take that serious and we draw into him. I mean, we say this a lot, but Jesus is the answer. He's the answer for passivity. He's the answer for boredom. For doubt, for fears and failures and uh, broken lives. I want you to bow your head with me. Father, I don't know which metaphor might have spoken most to each person here. There may be people here that uh, they know they're a soldier in this uh, army of God, but... Uh, they know so much about life is about them. And, or they, they, might, they might know that uh, they live uh, distant from your grace, and so they're always succumbing to temptation. And, uh, or maybe they just really are not characterized as a hardworking farmer, and they feel like they don't have any uh, space in life for the kingdom. And Father, I pray that uh, no one here would feel guilty over not serving the church. I am fully convinced, Lord, that you will resource your church. You will supply and you will call and you will lead. And, uh, and Father, there may be many here who are called to serve outside of this church. And I pray that However it is that ministry develops, however it is that discipleship takes root, I just pray, Father God, that it would. And Father, we know that that comes from this, this drawing in, this, uh, this hunger for you, this, this proclamation that life is about you. And so, Father, we sing, these, we sing these words to you as a testimony of what's on our heart these days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want us to stand together.